0: On the record, flips to the B-side. It was a time when Chuck E. Cheese was the place to have a birthday party, and there was nothing greater than a bedtime story with mom or dad. It's a little thing we like to call childhood. I'm Nia Lobel, and this month on B-side, When We Were Small, an archive edition where we remember the things we did, what we thought about, and what it all meant to us back in the day, as, on the record, flips to the B-side. was me when I was 13 years old at my friend Jenny's birthday party at Soundtracks. Soundtracks was a place at the mall where you could go into a small red-walled studio and sing along to your favorite pop songs, show tunes, or oldies. I loved it. And I have about five or six recordings of me and my friends singing everything from Whitney Houston's greatest love of all to memories from the musical Cats. I'm not going to torture you with those recordings. But on this archive edition of B-Side, we will take you back to a simpler time, when we were small. First, our senior producer Tamara Keith lived her first eight years in a way that most diva wannabes like me could only dream of. She was a child star, Hollywood style. I think of this chapter of my life as a bit of an oddity.
1: I don't even feel like I'm talking about myself right now. It's like that child star is a totally different person. My knowledge of this time comes through faint memories, my parents' endless stories, and a couple of dusty videotapes, like this one labeled Tamara Coast Soap.
2: You can pick up any soap, but can any soap pick you up?
1: My job was to sit in a bathtub full of bubbles with another little girl and look cute. It doesn't seem
3: that complicated now, but my mom says it took hours. You weren't a very nice girl that day and so you wouldn't comply with what the director asked you to do so they pulled you out and put you in the dressing room and this other little girl stayed in the water in the tub all day filming and then at the very end um, you begged the director oh please I am so sorry can I please go back in so they let you go back in and you were so cute that the poor little girl who'd sat in the tub all day didn't get used at all
1: here comes my line wow let's hear that again listen closely wow
2: the like
1: That first little wow you hear was me. The rest of the commercial was other kids. My bad behavior on the set of the Coast Soap commercial apparently wasn't that unusual. My dad says I was never the easiest kid to work with.
2: Sometimes with the print work that you did, you'd give them two or three good shots and you were done. That was it. If you haven't got it yet, you're not professional enough to work with me.
1: So I was a bit of a prima donna? I'd say. But being a child star wasn't as glamorous as you might think. There were cattle calls, auditions, and callbacks. Every interview required dressing up, having my mom do my hair, which was hell for both of us, and sitting in gridlocked L.A. traffic for hours. The long car rides gave me awful headaches. And this may sound silly, but I missed seeing the premiere of the cartoon She-Ra because I had to go to an interview for a Cabbage Patch doll commercial it's a big deal when you're six. According to my parents, the idea behind my early career was that I would pay my way through college by acting my way through elementary school. But most of the money I made went to pay for headshots, cute little dresses, and tiny dentures to fix my gappy smile every time I lost a tooth. In the end, the acting money only paid for one semester of college at a public university. The truth is, my career was never really about me.
2: Your mom and I both had degrees in theater and neither one of us could get a job as an actor to save our souls and so uh, since we had somebody that could actually get the work it was kind of fun to see that and, and your mom and I both enjoyed uh, going on the set with you and uh, working with different people and so forth.
3: I think it's a truth be known, we were living through you. And in a
1: way, I think that's okay. I'm not one of those child actors who've grown up to resent their parents. I'm glad to have had the experience, and I'm also glad they let me quit when it was time. What ended my career exactly? We decided
3: that your career was more important to us than it was to you, and your agent said she really doesn't want to do this anymore but we didn't believe her so we got you another agent and after you worked for that agent for a while we finally realized that the first agent was probably right that you really didn't want to do it anymore
1: the biggest role i ever landed was also my last when i was eight years old i got a speaking part on the television drama the judge the show was about a custody battle between my tv parents My mother was agoraphobic, so she was afraid to leave the house. The big suspense of the episode was whether my mother would be willing to appear in court. Halfway through the show, the judge calls for a recess, and my TV aunt goes into the hallway to call my mom. Mom's attorney leads my sister and me out into the hallway to wait.
3: Please, please don't be there. Well, there's no answer. She's coming, she's coming. I told you. She's probably on her way right now.
2: Maybe. Or maybe she's just not answering the phone.
1: In case you missed it, that was me screeching, she's coming, she's coming, in unison with my TV sister. After the commercial break, my mother shocks us all, overcomes her agoraphobia, and arrives in court. Clara!
4: Mommy! Well, I'll be
1: damned. The judge rules in favor of my TV mom. We all hug, and the credits roll. And with that, I said goodbye to television stardom. Shortly after I filmed The Judge, my family picked up and left L.A. I started fourth grade and started a new life. I never looked back. Then seven years later in my high school chemistry class, a student I didn't know very well came up and asked me if I had ever been an actress. But she already knew the answer. Apparently late at night on some random cable channel, she saw a little girl in pink overalls squeak, She's coming! She's coming! Then the judge ruled, the credits rolled, and my name went rolling up the screen in big bold yellow type.
0: Memory is a tricky thing. Our brains have a way of molding the facts to fit a good story, so that when we retell the tales of our childhood, they make people laugh, or think a certain way, or remember along with us. Sometimes we leave hints for ourselves, to make sure we get the details straight—photographs or little mementos that bring back a scene from the past. I'm the queen of saving stuff like that. I have shoeboxes filled with little memory joggers. I even have a piece of paper with the words, Hi Mia. Save this. Love, Sari. November 14th 1986 it's totally stupid but that little piece of paper brings me back to an exact moment in my basement with my best friend at the time and all the smells and sounds associated with it besides Sarah Neal is also a collector of sorts and has this commentary about leaving something behind in
5: 1987 I found James Patrick Warner 1942 written under my bedroom wallpaper I was 14 at the time and I was fascinated. Who was this guy? And what made him sign and date a bedroom wall? Fifteen years later, I think I understand. My husband, Paul, is a carpenter. He specializes in remodels, and over the past three years, he has found about 50 objects and scribblings in walls and crawl spaces, mostly bottles, newspapers, and building materials. But he also finds measurements and diagrams under wallpaper, and once... He found Itchy was here, scrawled on the inside of some sheetrock in a San Francisco flat. His most unusual find was a love note. It had no date on it. He doesn't remember what it said. And he threw it away because it was a piece of trash. My perspective is not so purely practical. I think these objects and scribblings were hidden away for a reason. For me, odd and random objects have an intrinsic use. My collection is as follows a green glass cold cream jar, a paper drink umbrella, a half-chewed walnut shell, a key, various pieces of stuffed animals, a rock, two silver quarters, a buffalo nickel, a pin from the international violin competition in Indianapolis, a class ring, a button, a guitar pick, a dried rose, and dusty bits that used to be a monarch butterfly. I can sit by myself, open this jar, and reinvent the immediacy of each event— person, or time in life. In each case, what I hold on to about something gives me a reflection of who I was at that time and what I was going through in the past. Leaving something behind, on the other hand, hiding objects or scribblings like, Itchy was here inside a wall, I think this can be used to keep track of a slightly heavier piece of information. Flashback to James Patrick Warner in 1942. I admit, I have no way of knowing he didn't simply sign what he considered a pretty good wallpaper job. But this is my theory. It's 1942. James Patrick Warner is hanging wallpaper, pausing to consider that the wall he is working on may outlive him. He glimpses the magnitude of the history that has come before and imagines the length of the history that will succeed his death. Looking backward and forward in time, he sees no evidence of his existence and decides to write something for himself on the wall. A little something in the course of his day to prove to himself that he was really there, a little bookmark. I signed my name below his and covered it back up.
0: You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're looking back at a time when we were small. I work with high school kids now, and one of my favorite things to do is talk to them about big life issues, like politics and the environment. They have such strong views and ideas about the way things are, or ought to be, and it's great to hear their teenage perspective. Last year for Valentine's Day, I decided to have some of my students write about love, and I recorded what they came up with.
2: Love, to many people, is good. They want to live every second together. They cry when they leave each other's arms, and are eternally happy when they meet again. But personally, I hate love. These days, it's all Disney Channel love. It's ruining life for me. Now relationships are so cheesy. I quote Adam Sandler, love stinks.
1: Love sucks. It's the most god-awful, irrational feeling, and I hate it. It leads to nothing but heartache, and who needs that? Granted, that may sound a bit bitter, but bear with me because I have a reason all three of my boyfriends broke up with me in the three weeks before valentine's day i don't know if their brains undergo some chemical malfunction rendering them incapable of maintaining human emotional attachments or if i just have the worst love karma in the known universe but somehow everything cosmic conspires to end my relationships on or near the most romantic day of the year Perfect. love is a disease that
6: only causes problems i despise love and everything associated with it Valentine's Day makes me sick. I don't get a day off of school for it, so therefore I
2: don't get any benefits from it. Love is like the happiest and best thing, because when you're in love, you're happy about everything. When you hug the person you love, nothing else matters. When you're with the person you love, it's like you don't need anything or anyone else. And when you're not with the person you love, all you can think about is them and being with them. The person you're in love
0: with seems to complete you. You don't worry about anything except being with them and loving them. That's it. Special thanks to the Maybeck High School Intermediate Composition Class of 2002.
3: In a stranger, that is all, simply
2: telling us to fall in love. And that's why birds
3: do it, please do it. Even educated, please do it, let's do it. Fall in love. I've heard that lizards and frogs do it, lying around. They say that roosters do it with a bill and on Argentines without beans do it. I mean, really mustn't beans do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love.
0: Earlier in the show, I played my early teen karaoke attempt at a music career you can tell that we weren't really headed for the big time. Well, B-Sides' Dave Gilson was also not headed for stardom with his high school rock band. He has the story.
4: Adonis Stew and the Rejectoids formed in December 1988 in my family's den. We only performed together twice, but every song we ever played was recorded on tape. Adonis Stew <laughs> And the Rejectoids. Act <laughs> one, scene one, one take, take four. four. <laughs> Greg Kitagawa and Stu McLaughlin were my best friends in high school. We were juniors when we renamed ourselves Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids. Rejectoids says a lot about our social life at the time. Fortunately, things have changed. Today we're all nearly 30 years old and we have pretty much everything a bunch of 16 and 17 year old boys could ever want. Girlfriends, cars, and legal IDs. I've held onto my copy of our band's tape as a reminder of what we used to be like but I hadn't felt the need to listen to it in years. Mostly because Adonis Stew and the Rejectoids really, no, really sucked. That was Stew on guitar, Greg on piano, and me on accordion. Yes, the accordion. What the heck were we thinking? I contacted my former bandmates to find out. It has been a long time since I thought about uh, said band. Probably years. That's Stu, AKA Adonis Stu. These days, he's got an MBA and he lives in San Francisco. He'd forgotten a lot about the band. I I bet in my memory it sounds better than it, it does. When I replayed the tape for him, it all started coming back. The song he remembered most was our one original composition, a heavy metal number called Hellbent and Hot for Leather. The lyrics are just a little too raunchy to play on this family program. Who wrote Hellbent and Hot for Leather? I think you wrote the music and maybe Greg and I wrote the lyrics. <laughs> okay, Good, good, good. <laughs> Listening to the tape with Stu was simultaneously fun and excruciating. It's one thing to remember you were a bad musician, it's another to be painfully reminded of it. For me, that moment came in the middle of a version of John Lennon's Imagine, in which I was singing some improvised lyrics about stew and barnyard animals. Imagine a world for a No weekend games with sheep <laughs> Oh my God, that is priceless. I, I do, that, now, we made fun of you about that for years thereafter, didn't we? Yeah, you got a lot of mileage out of that. Oh, that is priceless. What else is on there? I also called up Greg, who's now a doctor in Cleveland and just announced his engagement. He remembered a bit more about the band than Stu had. He'd kept his copy of the tape, and he'd even played it for a friend in college. But then, Greg had less to be ashamed of. If there was a musical brains behind Adonis Stu and the Rejectoids, it was him. You were the only one who really had musical talent. You, you, you could sing and you could play piano. So. Yeah, but if you, if you uh, may notice from the tape, I can't actually do both very well uh, simultaneously. I was just trying to make sure that I was plinking out the right notes, though no one else in the band seemed to really care about hitting the right notes. Greg's favorite cut on the tape is our dirge-like version of the Rolling Stones' You Can't Always Get What You Want, featuring my 12-year-old brother on clarinet. Despite the voice cracks, the crude songwriting, and our uncanny knack for butchering every song we touched, all three of us remember our short stint as wannabe rock stars as one of the highlights of our friendship. I I just remember having so much fun down there. And uh, it was amazing that, you know, back then we were were able to hang out and really not care about anything and just have a terrific time and totally escape in music when we were all such horrible musicians. What also makes the tapes remarkable is how unselfconscious and innocent we seem on them. You know, plenty of high school kids, you know, were doing things probably a lot more self-destructive or potentially dangerous. (laughs) They, They at least, they were smart enough not to record it for posterity's sake. I don't think any of us really regret recording our musical exploits for posterity. Though we didn't realize it back then, we were leaving ourselves a time capsule that would one day show us that embarrassment and nostalgia can go hand in hand. So I'm sure Greg and Stu will be happy to know that after this, the tape is going back in its case where it belongs. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson.
0: Finally today, besides Emily Gunnison started her radio career when she was very small. She gives us this glimpse into her early years as a radio superstar.
6: One Sunday afternoon, my sister Anne and I found an old handheld tape recorder, and we made a radio show. Anne was 8 and I was 11. Our parents were avid public radio fans, so we called our show Everything Real Bitter, named after its more famous NPR counterpart all things considered. Stay tuned for everything real bitter, the greatest radio station alive. We named our host Beacon Hughes, a conveniently androgynous figure who we both played in a variety of voices, ranging from the ultra-high-pitched squealer to the deeper authoritarian with a suspicious accent. I'm Beacon Hugh. Hughes. I am Beacon Hughes. I'm
2: Beacon Hughes. Thank you, Beacon.
6: There were tragic news events like hurricanes and a fiery racetrack collision. Anne reported on the damage.
2: Houses were knocked off and stripped miles away. Stables, horses flew in them too. Tarrytown was a
6: place where a hurricane hit. We had interviews in which I played the difficult and stubborn guest. How do
2: you feel about singing? I hate singing. I think it's a waste of time. Why do you do it? I don't. That's my evil twin sister. Well, could we get your evil twin sister to come? No. Why not? Because. Because why? Because I said so. Okay. Well,
6: thanks for being with us. See you later. Some of our best moments were during the barrage of advertisements that came between our news flashes. Apparently, commercial-free public radio hadn't caught on at everything real bitter. Come to Sideburn City,
2: the haircut barn. Open all weekdays from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Go in looking like a shaggy dog and come out looking like a professional model. Located on Sperry Road in downtown Brownsley.
6: Anne and I worked on our radio show on and off for a few months. But in the years since we made that tape, I've listened to it about a million times. For whatever reason, I just can't get enough of it. It's like all of our childhood memories are encapsulated on that one tape. Even though we were pretending to be Beacon Hughes and obstinate musicians and obnoxious salespeople, we were so... us. Beep beep, this just
2: saying I'm sorry. Hey, and this is going go
6: absolutely crazy hitting yourself with a microphone and everyone else. Ah! I like being able to hear our youth played out like that. I always want to think we were so much more polished and sophisticated than we really were. And our show is such a reality check. You can't argue with tape. (laughs) Even 15 years later, there's such a preserved sense of a Sunday afternoon. And listening to those voices brings back memories of all the other afternoons that were just like the ones on our tape. There was this doomed sense of knowing we had so much homework, but we still wanted to play with this tape recorder instead. I'm glad we did. For B-Side, I'm Emily Gunnison.
2: Well, Anne, you know as our show is only half an hour, could you just sing for us right now? Yeah. I love Texas, any part of Texas. I just want to be in Texas. All I like is Texas. Texas, Texas, down in the west, Texas. Thanks for coming. I enjoyed. I'm inspired by being here. Thank you. Goodbye.
0: all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Lisa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. If you want to learn more about B-Side, check out our website at bside-radio.org. That's the letter B and the word side-radio.org. B-Side will return on February 19th with a show about what's in a name. In the meantime, On the Record returns February 5th. I'm Neil Lobel. Thanks for listening.